yes, you have the hierarchical org chart or maybe a matrix org chart, but if you were to put everybody on like a scatter plot and all of the lines in the web of relationships, every person in your company is connected to some number of other people. And if you were to strengthen those bonds of every single relationship between those people, just think how strong and resilient the organization would be. And what it takes is you as a leader saying, we're going to make this a priority. We are going to cultivate relational mastery. I'm going to learn myself, and then I'm going to go out and study, and then I'm going to provide opportunities for my team to learn, creating guidelines and principles and practices that we're going to take on and reduce that relational friction, eradicate gossip, politics, blame, resentment, and all of the things that keep a company down from really fulfilling its potential. Welcome to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm David Hassel. And I'm Shane Metcalf. Me and David have been working together along with our co-founder, Nazar, and all the amazing other people that are a part of 15.5 for the last seven years. And we are not the same people that we were seven years ago. One of the things we're a big stand for is like, how do we actually embrace the whole person and understand that can we support someone in thriving in their whole life? And if we do, then they're probably going to contribute more at work. Your mission is to attract the best talent, retain your high performers, and maximize everyone's potential. Welcome to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm David Hassel, CEO of 15.5. And I'm Shane Metcalf, co-founder and chief culture officer. And we are really excited about the third chapter of the new best self-management model that we've been talking about the last few episodes, where we're going to be talking about the third pillar of best self-management. Well, so really quickly, an overview, you know, best self-management is a leadership and management paradigm that we believe can help you create a world-class organization through helping people be and become their best selves. And so far, we've talked about the first two pillars of that are create a powerful shared context. And so if you listen to the previous episodes, you can go into depth on each of these. But creating powerful shared context, vision, why, goals, all the things that create the purpose and potential of your organization. Then last episode, we covered become your best self, help people be and become their best selves, really going into the philosophy around why compassion is so critical to helping growth and development, why you need specific programs to encourage people to actually lean into their edge, discover their strengths, discover the truth of who they really are so they can show up and actually achieve new levels of performance and breakthrough. And also create the environment that has people feel like a strong sense of safety, belonging, and esteem so that they can naturally move into that place of best self. Now, the third pillar that really rounds it out and brings it all together, we call cultivate relational mastery. Yeah, and the reason this exists is because it's not enough to have people committed to being their best as individuals inside of some powerful shared context. We don't exist in a vacuum and nothing great gets done alone. We all have to work with other people and collaborate and be in creativity together. If we're going to do the extraordinary, which is one of 15.5's core values, we have to work with other people and we have to do that at a high, uh, a high functioning level. One of the things that we see in organizations that holds teams and companies back is relational friction. And it's, it's very common. At its worst, it shows up as things like drama, politics, resentment, blame. And my view is that unless you have a very high focus on the antidote, which we call relational mastery, that's the kind of default. Things 
tend to move in that direction. They may not get as bad as that, as you know, as those things fully, but you're going to be on a slope toward more relational friction than not. Yeah, I mean, I think the status quo right now for humanity is that most of us actually kind of suck at relationship. Most of us didn't learn effective communication methods in high school. We weren't taught how to take accountability for our feelings. We didn't really learn that having clearing conversations with people was something that you should do. More often than not, we are living in a world where we're kind of, our, our development around relationships is somewhat stunted. And we believe that if you want to get good at business, you need to get good at relationships. And there's all kinds of cool side benefits, like you actually have a better experience of going to work, you have more harmony at work, you have more creativity, you also then, those benefits bleed into the rest of your life, you suddenly are starting to have better conversations with your spouse, you have more connection with your friends, you're closer to your parents. I mean, there's all kinds of cool cascading benefits from getting better at relationship at work. And so often, anything that had to do with relationships was called soft skills. Anything that was around emotions and talking to people, oh, those are soft skills, which, you know, subtly is kind of a dig of saying it's a bit derogatory. They're, they're squishy. <clears throat> That's right. Touchy feely. And the really good stuff, the real value in business is the hard skills. Is the hard skills. That's right. And yeah, what's amazing is in this age of automation, the hard skills are going to be the first things to get automated. Computers can do the hard skills much better than us. Computers are much, much worse at the soft skills. And so we actually call them, what do we call them, David? Primary skills. Primary skills. I think it's the most important thing. And that, that came up in a conversation with Emily Diaz, who is on our team and leads our transformational services group. And she was talking about how do we go and effectively deliver training around soft skills? And it, it just hit me in that moment when she said it. I said, well, I think soft skills are easy to ignore because you know they're soft. They're not. They're not as important. It's just there's a there's a way that we frame them. And I think in our society now that's not necessarily all the case. I think people are coming around to realize this stuff is important. I think the the book Emotional Intelligence uh, EQ that was kind of groundbreaking work when it came out, and a lot of people now understand the importance of emotional intelligence in the workplace. I think now also moving into a high order relating skills is also people are realizing this stuff is important. If you read books like uh, Crucial Conversations and Crucial Accountability, right. Radical, uh, Radical Candor, is swept Silicon Valley by storm. Uh, a lot of Brene Brown's work on vulnerability and trust. A- like, an everyone culture. Yes. So there's an appetite for this stuff right now. And for good reason. For good reason. It's the source of the good life. Yes, but we're, we're still not seeing companies really living it at a, at a high degree yet. Because the truth is that it's hard. There's no magic pill. There's not a way to, even when you get good at it, it still takes time. It's, there's still ongoing investments required for it. So what we're advocating is that we need to start collectively thinking about how do we make our companies more of a conveyor belt so that somebody comes on Somebody joins the team and they're at, you know, maybe there's a hundred levels of relational mastery and somebody comes in and they're a level seven relational master. And how do we ensure and make it the default that by six months, they're level 10. By two years, they're level 20. 
and on and on that there is this environment where we're actually getting better at relationship. And it's cool because as we get better at relationship, also we get better at influencing. I mean, that's a lot of relationship is actually influencing. It's being influenced too, allowing ourselves to be influenced, but it's also about being able to influence. And it's about being able to ask for what we want. It's about communicating our needs, our desires, making requests. And so relational mastery is also a very powerful way to get more of what we want out of our work. Yes. And so to that end, how do we do that? Well, it starts with education. And I think it's it's important for people to have a real understanding of how they operate from a psychological and relational standpoint, how other people operate, understanding oneself and others and having bringing a high degree of compassion. And then within that, learning some new skills and practices. So 15.5, we've built a technology platform that automates a lot of the best practices of management to build world-class workplaces. But we know that technology is not enough by itself. There needs to be education and awareness. That is largely why we've started this podcast, so we can talk about the philosophy driving the company, driving the product. We're really excited to announce that we are releasing another platform that is really going to help with that process. We're introducing the 15.5 Best Self Academy. So if you love these topics and you want to go through a process of actually learning some of these, putting them into action, giving opportunities for your leaders, your managers, your employees to learn the fundamental practices of best self-management, you can go online to the 15.5 Best Self Academy Sign up for the various courses there. We have some free content. We have some more in-depth paid content. And we hope this will support you in your journey in creating a best self world-class workplace. So please go online to the 15.5 Best Self Academy. That's at 15.5.com slash academy. So I want to step back because one of the things that we talk about with relational mastery is this idea of the positivity ratio. And it's something that's well-known in social science is that human beings really thrive in dynamics, when you have a ratio of more positive emotional interactions to negative emotional interactions. Mm-hmm. And there's debate of whether it's three to one or eight to one or five to one. Um, apparently, whenever I bring this up with academics, they're like, oh, yeah, don't say a number because there's a lot of strong opinions about this. Uh, I think that academics, as they tend to do, are overthinking this. You want more positive than negative in your interactions, in your relationships. And so one of the things that is really powerful to do is to start thinking from a cultural level, how can we start engineering it to encourage more positive emotional interactions so that it's not even about decreasing the negative ones. How can you just like, you know, it's like nutritionists will say, don't just stop drinking soda right away. Just start eating more kale, you know, eat more vegetables. And slowly, as you add in nutritional elements, it'll start to displace some of the negative or some of the the unhealthy things that are in your diet. So that's a really good place to start with this whole idea of relational mastery is start dialing in the proper ratio. And I've heard that in terms of habit formation too, you know, rather than trying to quit bad habits, start filling your life with healthy habits, right? Taking on, you know, one new habit a month and eventually 
it's going to displace. Right. And so like, you know, one of the things that I I like to think of, like the health of any relationship is how generous are people being, you know, of the giving of the things that they know are going to be well-received by the other party. You know, like in my own marriage, you know, I'm thinking, I've been doing this exercise of like, how can I be more generous? And so, you know, it's my wife's birthday in December when we're recording this episode. And I've been playing this game of, oh, like she loves gifts. And I'm a pretty crappy gift giver. <laughs> you know, in general, it's not my primary love language. But this month I've taken on this thing. Well, what could I give her a little gift every day? And so it's been really fun. And I've been like, all right, yeah. And, and, and so it inspires generosity. And, you know, an amazing thing is that generosity begets generosity. And again, one of the concepts we're playing with here is that our personal relationships really aren't that different than our professional relationships. Mm-hmm. They're all relationship. And so if you get good at one, you're going to get better at the other. And so thinking about how can we be more generous with our relationships at work? And a really easy one around that is giving more appreciation. And so you want to talk a little bit around how we how we bring that to life, how we increase the positivity ratio internally at 15.5? Yeah. I mean, first and foremost, uh, we built it right into the product, right? So we have something called high fives at the end of every week when people fill out their 15 fives, they're invited to think about who can I give a high five to? And oftentimes people will you know, give quite a number of them. Uh, I try to remember uh, throughout the week, if there's something that happens, uh, whatnot, I'll pull out the iPhone app and I'll just give a high five on the spot because typically come the end of the week, I might forget you know, all the great things that have happened. It's an interesting point because in a way it's like, we kind of suck at remembering to appreciate people. And so it's like, create a system where you're reminded and prompted. Yes. Prompt everyone in your company to appreciate somebody at least once a week. Completely, you don't need to use 15.5. Send an email and say, hey, let's take take a moment and, and thank somebody for their work. I had heard that uh, Sean Aker, who has a, a, a very popular TED talk on positive psychology, I think some of his research aligned with this. And I had heard someone who was following him or maybe working with him was, who said that, you know, they experimented with something where uh, every morning when every employee would come into work, they open their email and send between one and three appreciative emails to start their day. And they took that on as a practice for a month. So it's just an example of creating some sort of standard or habit or practice that gets people into that mode. And you know, one thing, uh, as you were speaking before, this reminded me of the concept that we've often used called the emotional bank account. You know, you think about that positivity ratio, you know, oh man, I gotta what we don't want you to do is be thinking like, all right, we're up to three before I give some maybe challenging feedback, right? You don't want to be like kind of keeping score, but you want to be thinking about am I adding more into that bank account that I'm taking out on an ongoing basis. Because when the inevitable relational challenges do come up and we have to have it may be a challenging or uncomfortable conversation, and there's a, there's a way that we advocate having difficult conversations that we'll talk about in a minute, you've got a bank account to draw upon, right? You have some trust and connection and the relationship can weather some challenging conversation. Even if defensiveness comes up, you have the ability to come back and repair from a place of strength, right? And so you want to you have a conversation where you go in with a lot of curiosity. You go in with two, you know, kind of two intentions. One is I really care about this relationship and I want to make sure that we maintain a clear, open, clean, relating, whatever you call it. That. that would also be part of the shared powerful context that you can create as an organization of saying our relationships matter. And the more trust 
the rapport we have with each other, the more effective we will be as an organization. Yes. So you, you come in with that intention, like I, I care about this relationship, and because of that, I'm going to bring courage, right, and vulnerably share, like, hey, something happened here that I felt negatively impacted, and this is my experience. And you're wanting to kind of check out and also bring curiosity to not be so attached to your story of what actually happened to actually prove it out. You may be actually be right. And maybe the person said or did something that they didn't even realize that it was a blind spot. And you're giving them an opportunity to own it and to recognize there was impact and apologize. But there's a whole variety of things that could come out of that conversation. And it may not be what you expect. Uh, I actually want to promote the conscious leadership group's practices around this. If you're looking for a simple form of how to do a clearing, uh, if you go to conscious.is on their website, they've got a number of really great resources. One of the other things that we can talk about is the concept of above and below the line, which is one of the main things they're known for. But they have a clearing form on there that gives you a, a walkthrough on how to do a clearing conversation. So that's an easy, easy way to get started. I know one of the things they talk about is in the conversation, just recognizing like, David, when you just took a, a sip of your water when we were talking, the story I was <clears throat> I told myself was that you weren't present with me. Uh-huh. I mean, actually, I wasn't. Yeah, I, yes, but, but you could have. I could have. And it allows you to take accountability for the experience that you're having. Instead of saying, you weren't present with me, it's actually saying the story I was telling myself. Right. And then I felt, I felt hurt by that. And so, um, as and this gets into to, kind of not NVC, nonviolent communication yes. techniques. Right. And it, it's starting with taking full accountability and ownership of your own experience, your story, your feelings, and checking it out, right? As opposed to saying, you made me mad. Because the reality is nobody can make you feel anything. You've, it's like something might happen and then you feel, right? And so it's, it's actually acknowledging the reality of that situation. Now, yes, you can do things that may be hurtful and I'm going to have my feelings about it. But as soon as we start to say, you did this to me, or you made me this way, then we're already locked into that story where we're essentially setting ourselves up as I'm the victim, you're the perpetrator, you're to blame, I'm already angry. And round and round we'll go. Right, exactly. And so there are ways to untease that, you know, because I think Crucial Conversations has a, has a really interesting mapping of what happens from something happens. And then very quickly, we end up like through three or four steps, we end up with a story about what happened and an interpretation of what happened that may or may not actually be valid, right? Because we may have misinterpreted the actual thing that happened. Well, so interpretation is such an important piece in mastering our psychology. You know, that, that moment when we interpret external things into our internal meaning. And that gets into one of the other concepts that we play with at 15.5, which is assume positive intent, which, you know, in contrast, there's assuming negative intent, and so the flip is assume positive intent. Doesn't always mean someone has a positive intent. And, and so if something happens, if I'm going to come into a clearing conversation, you know, this is where one of the things about assume positive intent, you know, what we're not saying is that don't walk around just always believing that everyone has positive intent. But if you go into a conversation like assuming that they had a negative intent in the situation, you're already locked into being right and defensive as opposed to curious. And I think it's a little bit of a mental hack to bring a little more softness into the conversation to say, okay, 
we have a relationship here. I care about this person. I believe they care about me. My interpretation of what happened might be that they did or said something that was hurtful, but I'm, I'm going to assume that they didn't do that on purpose. And I'm going to I'm going to feel out what happened. I'm going to share my experience, the story I made up about it, the feelings I had, the impact to me, and find out was that a blind spot? Was it intentional? But you know, it helps me have the conversation if I assume positive intent, because if you're assuming negative intent, it's uh, probably easier to hide and not even address it. Well, it's also really easy to then go gossip, you know, oh my God, can you believe that idiot? What are they even thinking? Versus, oh, I'm going to assume that they were actually doing their best and maybe maybe I don't have all the information also. Maybe I'm missing something. And now I can go and say, hey, I saw something was off. Am I missing something? I'd love to understand the full picture or understand from your perspective how that happened. It doesn't mean we can't be direct with our feedback, but it always it creates a little bit more of that space for us to find out what's the other side of the what's story. the other side of the story, and then you know, and bringing curiosity, but also assuming that there might be a perfectly good reason why that happened from their point of view, right? And that actually goes into the next thing you said. You know, it doesn't mean we can't be straight with our feedback. One of the principles we operate with internally is this concept of truth with kindness. Okay, so we want to be candid, we want to be direct, but we also want to bring kindness to the conversation as well care, concern, compassion. Even when I have to deliver some truth with a, I would say, truth with a small t, it's my truth, my, my perception and my interpretation that may be a challenging thing to deliver, right? Because I may, it may be something that doesn't feel right on my end, or I have to give some feedback that, you know, may be interpreted as critical. But if we can come first from a place of the come from is really important. Someone recently told me, they said, if you deeply care about a person, you can say almost anything to them. Whereas if you're coming from a place of like resentment and blame, pretty much guaranteed the other person is going to get defensive. You know, that's radical candor's model where you need to care about the person. You need to demonstrate personal caring and then mix that with confronting directly. That's the golden circle of radical candor. That's what's actually going to get through. And our version of that is truth with kindness. If you like what you're hearing and you want to help us spread this message, the best thing that you can do is write a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the 15.5 Best Self-Management Podcast. And if you take a screenshot of that review and email it to podcast at 15.5.com, we'll reply with a code where you can get a free 15.5 t-shirt. They're very comfortable. I wear mine all the time. Want to give a shout out to KKF2 who wrote us a great review on iTunes. And they said, I'm hooked, a great way to gain exposure to a fresh perspective that is truly riveting. I was on the search for ideas about improving performance management when I stumbled across an article on best self-management. After reading that article, I was hooked. I then discovered these podcasts and have been listening to them over and over again. The conversations are stimulating, authentic, and inspiring. Loving every bit. KKF2, I am inspired and loving every bit of this review. Thank you so very much. And ProDog, great name, says, This podcast has helped change my way of thinking. As a user of the actual 15.5 product, it's interesting to see the concept and functionality of it relate directly to what they are talking about. 10 out of 10 recommend. Thanks, ProDog. So I'd like to 
talk about how do we get people because part of part of relational mastery is also seeking feedback as being in those feedback loops with yes. each other and you know it's it's well documented now that from a neurological perspective when we receive feedback from kind of out of the blue when somebody just says hey i have feedback for you our brains go into freak out mode right <laughs> where you yeah. know threat and red alert red alert red yeah. alert and we move into fight or flight and then you know we might be like okay yeah what do you want to share with me and then we're sitting there and maybe externally we look like we're somewhat relaxed but internally we're gripping and and that's not i think there are exceptions i think that the higher the amount of trust and rapport in that relationship, the less will go into a triggered state. But that's the exception. And it's well documented that if we ask for feedback, our brains are actually much more primed to receive it. And so getting people into feedback-seeking behaviors where we don't have to be the ones going and telling people feedback. People are asking us for feedback. Hey, I'd like to know, what can I do better? How do you think that went? Was there things that you liked? Were there things that you'd like to see more of? And that can really actually change the whole conversation around a, a culture of feedback on its head. Then it's suddenly it's not pushing; it's actually uh, kind of pulling in that dynamic. Right. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a huge thing, and again, it's it's setting up the practice in advance, like to make that the norm. And it, you can't always wait. There there are times you have to deliver Completely. feedback, right? Completely. That you're not going to be in a situation where they they've necessarily asked. Yeah. For the it. goal isn't to never put people into distress. The goal is not to just always be comfortable. But again, of of creating some of that shared context and yep. so, social agreement that we are going to be engaging in sharing feedback. Like that's part of being a part of this culture. That's how we grow. That's how we learn. And, you know, I think that, I mean, we're seeing this, there's a company right now that's getting a lot of heat right now because they were using their value around transparency as a smokescreen for being incredibly mean and demeaning to people. and. And under the guise of, let me teach you some professional skills. Let me hold you accountable. And meanwhile, it's just an excuse to be raging jerks and feel really justified inside of that. And, you know, maybe you can get some short-term results from that by cracking the whip. And, you know, I think we see that a lot in growth at all cost cultures. I was actually thinking, it's like, what if we had um, personal growth at all costs? <laughs> right, yes, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, we will help our people grow at all costs. Yeah. And uh, how different that would be. Because we really want to make sure that we're building not just, you know, short-term results, but we're actually building companies that can sustain themselves for the long haul. Which requires a lot of resilience. And yeah. I think the, you know, the relational mastery, if people are practicing this at a high degree, you're strengthening the bonds between every individual in the company and everyone they relate with, right? Just think about that as a network. Think about this web of relationships that your company is. They don't 
necessarily just follow this rigid hierarchical org chart lines, right? Your company actually is a network of relationships. And if you can create a culture where each connection of that network is strengthened, you're creating an incredible resiliency inside the company. And that's what we're talking about here. You know, creating a culture where we can give and receive feedback, where that's the expectation, where we have a standard of delivering truth with kindness. Does that always happen to a perfect degree? No, but it's an ideal that we keep practicing. Well, that's, that's why it's, it's cultivate relational mastery, exactly. not be, be a relational, relational master. master. Right, because this is a practice. This stuff is really hard. This is, I mean, I, I've been working on learning a lot of these practices, you know, in many cases have, you know, have learned the hard way over 15 to 20 years. Like I understand this is a journey but we want to invite people into the practices, create this as the standard. Uh, because if you don't have a culture of giving and receiving feedback and delivering truth with kindness, well, guess what happens? You end up with a culture of gossip. It's just, that's the reality because people have to share their truth somewhere. Yeah. And so if they're not able to go to direct and they don't feel safe, they're going to go and talk about it to somebody else. And then- It's such an <clears throat> important piece. It's huge. So true. And that sucks. It does suck. That's a really- awful experience. Yeah, because what happens in a, in a culture of gossip, right? So I'm gossiping about you Wait, or, what? I'm, or with you, <laughs> with <laughs> you about somebody else. And you got to be wondering, like, am I saying something about you to somebody else? Like, is this how you operate in the world? Right. And then maybe I don't feel, you don't feel safe to share things with me because you know that I gossip. Right. And then you start having people being reserved and shut down and, and, and you have all of these side conversations happening. Now, Sometimes people need to vent. We have a, a practice in our company when someone comes to me or anybody else and says, you know, I'm, I'm having a tough time with so-and-so. Well, great. Like, it's okay to, to have a moment to vent as long as the conversation then says, okay, how can I support you in having a conversation with them as quickly as possible? That's where it has to go. It's like, you know, it's okay to, to go and get guidance from somebody, but the intent is that you address it directly, you go direct, and you clear that as quickly as possible. Because otherwise, like I said, then there's no purpose to the conversation of me sharing something of a frustration I have with someone if I'm not actually going to do anything about it. So another concept that I think would be worth talking about is this, uh, how we orient around expectations versus agreements. Expectations versus agreements. Okay, so expectations are one-sided, agreements are two-sided. Yep. It's a really simple way of, of delivering this breakdown. And so expectation is when, you know, David always shows up five minutes late to our meetings. And no, I don't. Um, that's <laughs> 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 um, actually true. Uh, hypothetical. Maybe you have somebody in your life that shows up five minutes late to your meetings. You are likely operating out of an expectation that that person should be on time. That's right. An expectation. Well, if you're upset about it, you are. So that's the place to look. Are you upset with somebody's behavior? Are you also maybe combining that with some story in your head? Oh, like, yeah. they like, should be here. Uh, David's always five minutes late to the meetings. He's not committed to this company. There we go. He doesn't have integrity. <clears throat> what the hell's wrong with him? He's wasting my time. Yes. Any and all of the above. Any and all of the above. Right. That means that's a clear I'm operating indication an with an expectation. Now... If me and David have sat down and I've said, David, I would really love for us to be on time. In fact, I want us to be one minute early to all of our meetings. And then you say, 
Uh, well, I, I can't do that because uh, you you know I have my meetings in oh, what on the, the hour, hell man uh, on the hour. Um, or I could say, well, okay, yeah. well, I, I you know you you might make your case for why being one minute early is good, and then we could say, okay, well, all right, I'll schedule my meetings to end five minutes prior to give me a little break, and that way I can oh, I great. can do that. Oh, so that's why you've been late is because you've been running late on your other meetings. There we go. Okay, great. So you're good to schedule all your meetings five minutes, ten five minutes yeah, before the next. That, that makes sense. And you agree that we'll try to be a minute early to our meeting. Yes, so we'll start on time. Awesome. Great. Great. Let's shake awesome. on it. There All right. Go. Cool. Now, if I show up late, it's we're, a very different conversation. Now we're in agreement. I'm no longer in a one-sided expectation. We're in a social agreement that we will be a minute early. Now, what's happening so often in our our lives in general, not just the workplace, but in our lives, is we're operating out of expectations of people. We're not creating agreements around our behaviors and performance and deadlines, but we're just expecting people to magically live up to our one-sided expectations. This is one of the most powerful relational tools I've ever learned in my entire life, and it has transformed a number of relationships in my life. Because when I first heard this, um, the person who was sharing it was saying, well, look, There's only two things that can happen when you have an expectation. Either your expectations met, and that's what you expected, so that's not very overwhelming, or or, you know, that's not very exciting, or your expectation is not met and you're upset. And so you're basically at zero or below, right? And there's no room to be unexpectedly surprised. Whereas when you have an agreement in place, Right. So, so I think one of the things that we can do is to notice where we have upsets that seem to be caused by other people. And then first ask ourselves, do I actually have an agreement with that person? Because if you don't have an agreement with the person, then you're putting your upset unnecessarily on that person. And you're, there, you're, all of this story and resentment and all the blame and everything that's, that's being cultivated is misplaced. One of the practices we have as a company is that we actually create a set of agreements for when new people join the team. And there's agreements that we're setting of things we that we would like from them, behaviors and you know uh, participating in uh, you know engagement surveys and filling out their 15 and fives, uh, showing up to meetings one minute early, things like that. And then also agreements around what we're going to do as a company to support them. And what it does is it moves it out of, well, you know, we hired you and we expected all these things, but nobody ever laid it out that, hey, this is the, actually the social contract of being a part of this company. Do you agree? You know, because agreements are consensual as well. Like, you know, I can't just say you better be on time a minute early. All right, cool. And then not actually have you be able to buy in. Yeah, exactly. So I think the practice here and the one we advocate for, and this this actually comes up. I mean, we talked about our rapid scaling this year, uh, last year from 70 to you know 200-ish people. This comes up when all of a sudden, you know, you're twice as big and the systems and processes that you didn't need before aren't in place for the size you get to. And things start breaking down and people are like, well, we should have this and this should be there. And they get upset. Well, a great thing to notice is saying, okay, well, you have an expectation that it should be this way, but we never actually had the conversation with the person on the other team that like, here's how it should go. If you notice that 
you have an expectation about somebody or how things should be, that's an opportunity to say, I just noticed that because we don't have this standard or this practice or whatever it is in the company, there's an impact to me and it's maybe an impact to our customers. And I think we need to shift something. Can we make an agreement that we're going to do X, Y, or Z? And so it, it kind of takes it away from blaming the other person for not meeting the expectation they didn't even know they needed to meet and allows you to take that discomfort or upset your feeling and turn it into a future action where you have partnership so that you can address those things going forward. Right. And so the real art is turning those breakdowns and disappointments into agreements. Exactly. And, and that's a continual process. Every day we're operating on some expectations that don't get met, and then we have the choice. Do we take it up to that next octave and turn it into an agreement? One other thing I really want us to cover is quality of listening. Because there's a spectrum of listening. All listening isn't created equal. And I think that especially in this modern day and age, one of the greatest gifts we can give each other is our presence, is our listening, is the quality of our listening. And so there's low quality listening. And that might be like, you know, oh, oh cool. Um, so David, so this uh, thing that we're supposed to do, <laughs> oh, wow, that's so cool picture on Facebook. And um, Wait, what? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I'm in a leadership meeting and I'm going to just go peek in Slack. I love working from home because I've got my computer and nobody can see my screen. We're on Zoom, but nobody can see my screen. And here's the marketing strategy. And oh, look at that cute GIF. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Oh, what? what's that KPI? So that's low quality listening or like yes. a level one listening. And, you know, this actually comes from a... Tracy at a World Blue that I learned this model from. Uh-huh, yeah. And, you know, she talks about four levels of listening. And if that's level one, then level four would be total presence, no agenda. There's the idea of listening to understand instead of listening to respond. And I think we can all do so much better at aspiring to a higher level of listening. And that's not while I'm listening to Shane thinking, oh God, okay, what's my next point going to be? And what am I going to share next? It's actually just being 100% present in the conversation and then trusting that I'll be able to speak whatever I need to speak uh, on the other side. And that's hard. It is very that's, hard. That's, again, this is, this is why it's cultivating. Because we want to take a growth mindset that we can all develop a higher emotional intelligence because relationships are essentially emotions and action. They're emotions made manifest. And so getting good at listening, at helping people feel listened to. Because again, in another episode, we were talking about how do we create a culture where people feel seen and, and appreciated and listened to? Well, you have to actually listen to people. You know, that's the shocking, uncomfortable truth there is that you want people to to feel listened to? Well, listen to them. Get curious, ask better questions, ask questions, and then ask better questions, and then actually listen. And like, sit with it. Don't immediately try to rush to solutions. Actually be with your people. And yeah, actions required quality listening is the prerequisite to be able to take effective action. Yes, 100%. Now, if I could only 
master this in my marriage. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, that's the beauty of it, is that right? It's like going through the relationship dojo, or rather, relationships are like personal development dojo, is that we get to practice this stuff. We get to practice this at work and we get to practice it at home. I mean, there's always a moment to notice, like, guaranteed, there's not one of us who hasn't had an experience of distracted listening, either receiving or giving, right? It's probably happens on a daily basis. And so every moment you're in a conversation, you have a moment to choose to lean in and practice and become fully present. And it is amazing what happens uh, on a one-on-one basis, in a team meeting. You know, If one or more people gets distracted in the meeting and they're not fully present, it changes the dynamic of the meeting very, very quickly. Yeah. You know, just think about your own leadership meetings or your own team meetings. What's the quality of listening in those? Is it high? Are people actually listening to each other or are they just listening enough so that they can respond and get their point across? Because what that means is that there's less cohesion in that team than there could be. Patrick Lencioni talks about like if everyone in a company could row in the same direction, there's not any industry they couldn't dominate. When you create unity, when you create cohesion and align people in the same direction and execute together, that's when extraordinarily high levels of performance become possible. So constantly think, how can I up-level the relational skills of each person in my company? What do I need to improve? Do I need to you know, read some books on empathy? Should I create some courses on NVC for my company? Do we need to get people to understand how to have clearing conversations? You know, if there's a lot of side channel and gossips happening, you probably should would benefit from learning the clearing conversation model from conscious leadership. Are people unsure of how to deliver candid feedback? Go read. Radical candor, listen to their podcasts. Or crucial conversations. Crucial conversations. Are people not asking enough questions? Work is now an opportunity. It's kind of a playground for developing these primary skills. And that's one of the easiest ways that you can leave people better off is to give them tangible relationship and communication skills. They will be one of the most utilized tools in all of our tool belts for the rest of our lives. And I really encourage you to visualize your company as this web, as this network of relationships. Yes, you have the hierarchical org chart or maybe a matrix org chart, but if you were to put everybody on like a scatter plot and all of the lines in the web of, of relationships, every person in your company is connected to some number of other people. And if you were to strengthen those bonds of every single relationship between those people, just think how strong and resilient the organization would be. And what it takes is you as a leader saying, we're going to make this a priority. We are going to cultivate relational mastery. I'm going to learn myself, and then I'm going to go out and study, and then I'm going to provide opportunities for my team to learn, creating guidelines and principles and practices that we're going to take on and reduce that relational friction, eradicate gossip, politics, blame, resentment, and all of the things that keep a company down from from really fulfilling its potential. Thank you so much for listening. Go out there, cultivate your relational mastery, 
And we hope that you will tune in for a future episode. A big thank you to our producer, Counter-Ray Creative, and our executive producer, David Misney, and Stacey Hurst, our guest coordinator. Please visit 15.5.com slash podcast. That's the number 15 and the word five. For more information on today's discussion, for additional resources and special offers. One of the easiest and highest leverage things you can do to support us in this podcast is write a review on Apple iTunes or Google Play. It really does go a long way in terms of getting the word out and more people can hear this message so that we can start a movement and truly get more and more businesses out there helping their people become their best selves. To get all the latest episodes, please subscribe to Best Self Management on iTunes or Google Play. And if you have a question or comment you'd like us to address in a future show, please email us at podcast at 15.5.com. And finally, thank you for listening to this podcast. Until next time, know that we support you in being and becoming your best self. <laughs>